Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at The Bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just €3 Euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company, Read Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or for users of all other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. There are few people who can write so brilliantly about so many things all at once as today's guest. And his new book, The Last Days of Roger Federer and Other Endings, could be his most wide-ranging to date. It's about tennis, as the title suggests, and specifically about the curtain dropping on the career of one of the most successful and most technically beautiful players ever. But as the subtitle suggests, it's also about endings of so many other kinds. The significance or otherwise of an artist's last work, mental and intellectual decline, finishing and not finishing books, and why, perhaps deep down, we really just long for everything to be over with, poetry readings in particular. He meditates on how old is too old for the Burning Man Festival, whether getting high is really a young man's game, and the technicalities of a playful grift which, if he pulls it off, could mean he never has to buy shampoo again. His compagnon de route are too numerous to list here, but include Nietzsche, E.M. Choron, D.H. Lawrence and Louise Gluck, as well as Bob Dylan, John Berger and Ludwig van Beethoven. That writer could only be Jeff Dyer. I'm such an admirer of his work, and I'm delighted to say that he joins me in our writer's studio today. Jeff, welcome to Shakespeare and Company. Oh, thank you, Adam. So happy to be back here on this gorgeous day in July. Yes, and the day, I suppose, um, it's, so it's Monday the 11th of July. So the day after Novak Djokovic has just won his seventh yes, Wimbledon title. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So before we, we delve in, into the book, did you, did you watch the match yesterday? Uh, I arrived in Paris yesterday and I got to my hotel and was able to start watching from about the third set onwards. Mm -hmm. And it was a strange thing in that I wanted neither of them to win. <laughs> um, and because, I mean, Kyrgios is great fun to watch as uh -huh. a tennis player, but I find his, I mean, that match against Tsitsipas was mm -hmm. so distasteful, so unpleasant. And I find his behavior is so so he's such a such a baby mm. uh, and even yesterday's match when his behavior by his standards were, was reasonable by anyone else's standards it was entirely unacceptable <sighs> so um although one has issues with Djokovic for other uh, other reasons as a tennis when he's playing tennis I think he's actually quite gracious and of course he's mm -hmm. an amazing tennis player so I think it was probably um, a, a happy outcome, but uh, you know, is Roger going to be able to win another three Grand Slams to uh -huh. jump ahead of Nadal and Djokovic? That's extremely unlikely, mm -hmm. I think. Well, let's talk talk a little bit about about Roger because obviously he's given uh, given you the title um, <laughs> of, of the book, um, and one thing we feel immediately. I mean, you don't actually spend that much time writing specifically about Roger Federer in the book, but he's, he definitely looms over it. And we feel a, he holds a real significance for you as mm. a tennis player and as a tennis sort of enthusiast, as somebody who enjoys watching, watching games. So could you talk just a little bit about what for you 
sets him apart. Because as you say, it's not number of titles. He's not mm. on paper the greatest tennis player ever. So what distinguishes him from the rest of the big four or big five? Yes, I wish I had something original to say about <laughs> uh, 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 Roger. Although, well, I'll, I'll take a step back. And it was about five years ago that I re- I'd always loved watching Roger. And then about five years ago, I realized, oh my God, I love him more than ever. <laughs> And I think that was quite a common feeling because there was a phase when we were taking his greatness for granted. Mm. And then when he started losing to, uh, typically he'd sail through the early rounds of a slam and then he'd come up against either Djokovic or Nadal. And uh, the strange thing or the remarkable thing rather was that even when this seemed to be an unbreakable pattern, he brushed aside all questions about, you know, so do you think you should pack it in now? Because mm-hmm. clearly you're not going to win another slam. He, you know, he he didn't consider retiring because what he 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 loved. He didn't just love playing tennis, which is not necessarily so common among top tennis players. As you know, as we know from the Agassi bio, autobiography, right. yeah. it can become you can end up hating tennis. So he liked, um, you know, he loved playing tennis, even if he wasn't winning titles. And more importantly, he loved every aspect of being on the tour. Mm-hmm. I mean, and one of those aspects he liked was this thing of being so having the evidence of being so widely loved mm-hmm. all over the world, even though the extent and intensity of that love probably meant he couldn't go anywhere, because if he went anywhere, a love riot would break <laughs> out, you know. Anyway, so there's there's that. And um then what happened, of course. There was this sort of remarkable thing whereby um, after he seemed to have accepted that he was only ever going to be the runner-up, then coming back from the surgery, you know, there was Mm -hmm. that, I've even forgotten what year it is now because of COVID, when he won in, you know, in that same year of his comeback, oh, the Australian Open, Indian Wells, Miami and Wimbledon. Mm -hmm. And what that, that lovely final blaze of glory Mm. and light at the end of the day reaffirmed something that we had taken for granted. It was this lovely thing that we could see once again, oh yeah, the most efficient way of playing tennis, because winning is an indicator of efficiency, Mm -hmm. could also be the most aesthetic pleasing. And I think that coming together of um, results plus aesthetic pleasure is very, very rare in sport. Mm. Typically, they pull in contrary directions. When it happens, that's just something wonderful for everyone to behold. And then it combined with this other thing that I think, you know, there was this, what do we look for sport for? Well, glory. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, so importantly, actually sportsmanship. And he'd, uh, I think he'd, you know, the way that he had, come to terms with with uh, become a gracious loser all of these things i think just we it meant that yeah we just had this intensification of appreciation for what he'd done and i guess we could also we have to, if we're talking about the aesthetic pleasure then you can say that actually um you know let's say alcaraz this spanish player who is i heard somebody say that he felt he was the most complete player at his age mm-hmm. of anyone since Federer. Well, that may or may not be true, but there's this one aesthetic thing going against him, which is that he has a two-handed backhand. Mm-hmm. No player can play beautifully if they haven't got a one-handed backhand. Right. And 
I guess the thing about the one-handed backhand, it's such a fragile shot, isn't yes. it? It's a high-stakes thing. The two-handed backhand is automatically more durable and reliable. So there's all, all of mm. that uh, going on. And I think during that, you know, the last phase of, uh, of Roger's uh, uh, sort of uh, post, yeah, during those last years, we were, we were, really, a, we were really conscious of, of things that we'd maybe uh, uh, taken for granted before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I was reading your book, um, it sort of unearthed a couple of sort of feelings and memories that I had of um, of Roger Federer, particularly I guess his his rise um, more than more than his decline. So I remember very clearly in your book you talk a little bit about Pete Sampras, mm -hmm. and as I was growing up, I'm one of those people who has a sort of a general interest in tennis until it comes to Wimbledon, and then it sort of peaks. It's that kind of a very British phenomenon, I think, of sort of being interested in tennis intensely for about two two weeks of every year. Um, but I remember, I know I won't be able to remember the year, but when Sampras was unbeatable mm. and then in the first round of one Wimbledon, this kind of young upstart who nobody had ever heard of, Roger Federer, knocked him out in the yeah. first round. And Federer didn't go on to win that, but it already felt like a transition moment in, in my tennis life. And I think the second thing was that Federer, I think, was the first person in any discipline in which I had an interest who was... My generation, maybe a few years younger than me, because I think he's probably in his late thirties now. If I, if I've got that right. Oh no! He, well, he, yeah, yes. I mean, I think he's coming. He's going to be forty this right, year. Right, right. Yeah. So I'm turning forty-two in a few few months' time. And so seeing somebody just a little bit younger than me reach the top of their game and sort of mm. dominate the world, when in my you know late teens and early twenties I was just kind of <laughs> floundering, uh, were two very kind of remarkable experiences. Yes, you're you're right, and uh, I I think for I mean I I'm very much a contemporary of John McEnroe, mm. you know, and I sometimes think to myself, you know, when I think about what I've achieved, and I think, yeah, what has McEnroe ever done? <laughs> <laughs> Loser. <laughs> but yeah, you. I mean, I think one's life does indeed go in tandem with these uh, sports players, uh, and you know, and then. Um, yeah, no, I, I sort of all I can do is yes, I, I, I hear what you're what you're saying. It's funny they're going back to those early matches of Roger because, I mean, it, these sort of fashions in sport change, and mm -hmm. when I mean fashions, I mean very literally about the clothing. And now when we watch those early matches of Rogers, of course he's playing in this rather beautiful way, but he looks awful with his little <laughs> ponytail and he's got this kind of rather sort of bad complexion and he's wearing these baggy clothes. And it's funny that now that's, uh, that works to his aesthetic detriment. But then I guess we should also say that, uh, you know, Roger did go through this unfortunate phase after he'd become sort of crowned as the great sort of aristocratic, graceful player. Then he did go through that phase of being a bit of a tosser when he turned up at Wimbledon <laughs> in his kind of great Gatsby suit, you know. Of course, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so it wasn't cons kind of consistent aesthetic perfection throughout his career. It's almost retrospectively we can find the thread of it. Yes, that's right. And then also, I mean, physically, it seems to me, it's funny, we, we you know, I know we're not allowed to talk about women tennis players' uh, physical uh, appeal or lack of it. But in Roger's case, I think he, he is sort of slightly better looking now than he, you know, than he, well, yeah, mm. he's a lot better looking yeah. now with shorter hair than he was when he he's was grown just grown into his face. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 that's right. Yeah. yeah. And I remember also, this is worth saying that um, 
So compared with Rafa, obviously, Roger, it looks, he's got rather scrawny arms, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so he's not really buffed the way Alcaraz is. But when my friend and I were in a press conference at the Indian Wells the year he won, Roger came into the room, a bigger room than the one we're in, but not a vast room. And he appeared and he was just like this Greek god. Mm-hmm. And both my, I mean, I, I was, think I was about 16. My friend was in his late 50s. And we both went, oh, as though it was as though we were teenage girls. And um, <laughs> I don't know, whatever his name is, the latest kid in a boy band of water. But yeah, physically very, very, you know, I mean, it's perhaps, a, of course, he looks like what he is, which is yeah. a, 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 a real elite athlete. Mm-hmm. I guess, yeah. You only really see them most of the time next to other elite athletes. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, that was, uh, yeah, that was, and he was so gracious and charming. And I guess the in this press conference, which is uh, certain or quite often, they're just kind of, you know, they just got, they just answer the questions. Mm-hmm. But the other reason I think that I, I, we all love Roger so much is that in all the, in, you just get the impression that he's really got a great sense of humor. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, yeah, that, of course, that's uh, that's Im- that's important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I've got this conviction that if we ever did meet, we could become friends. <laughs> and I really believe that, even though I'm aware that, as I think it, I'm in the grips of a delusion. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's go from sort of this general sort of reflection on the end of Roger Federer's career. And you also talk about a press conference that Andy Murray was giving, which yeah. essentially you said sort of he essentially announced what amounted to his um, his retirement. And then taking these kind of these thoughts and deciding to write a book about endings. And I guess deciding to write that book about endings now as well. Mm. And I mean, now in this historical moment, but also now in, at this point in your career. Like it's, it's quite, um, and you know, I should reassure our listeners, it's quite clear when reading this book that, you know, this is not intended as your swan song. You know, you, uh, you know if, if, the, if fate allows, you will continue writing books uh, well into the future. So what was it about? as I say, both this moment in history and this moment in your life that made you want to take on this subject now? Yeah, well, I'd been thinking about uh, writing a book about last things uh, for a while, Mm. or at least it had been a subject that had uh, interested me, partly because, and it's it's necessary to make a slight distinction here, so much work has been done on late style, Mm -hmm. uh, and the foundational text is, of course, Adorno's essay, Late Style in Beethoven. Mm. And this is a fairly well-trodden area of academic interest now. And in Beethoven's case, of course, I mean, that, yeah, Beethoven is the classic thing because his last works were his late works mm. anyway. And then I, but I thought, yeah, I'm interested in last works. And it's not always the case, as it is with Beethoven, that last works are late works. Mm. And we can think of all sorts of examples of last works, which really come in the middle phase of mm. an artist's life, you know, if Beethoven happened to have dropped dead, uh, you know, uh, however many years previously, then actually his last works would have coincided with his what we now mm. regard as his middle phase. And then, you know, we can also think of, um, so in, in the book, I talk about Coltrane's last work. Right. Coltrane, of course, dies so young in his 40s. Those la- last works of Coltrane's are so clearly transitional works mm. where he's trying to work out what to do next he didn't by the time he hadn't got near his his uh, his late phase it, it seems to me and then we can keep sort of bringing the uh we can keep bringing the idea of the last forward mm. 
And we think of all sorts of writers, for example, who, uh, you know, their first book is their last book. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, yeah, very definitely uh, lastness as opposed to uh, lateness. Mm -hmm. And I'd been thinking about this for a while. Uh, I'd been thinking I would like to write a book about both Beethoven's late and last phase uh, and Turner's late and last mm -hmm. phase. They were that they went together in several ways. Their careers overlapped. Uh, for, they didn't exactly coincide, but they overlapped. And then so many of the descriptions of what Beethoven was like and what Turner was like, I mean, they were interchangeable mm -hmm. um, uh, in all sorts of ways. Their, their bad manners, their physical, uh, uh, their lack of physical appeal, their coarseness. Uh, and uh, anyway, so I I liked the idea of that, and there were just a number of these sort of things, not exactly swirling, because by the time things are swirling, you get a sense that you're really close to something mm -hmm. starting, but just sort of con converging on a con convergent interest. Anyway, and of course, it's one of the things you contemplate when embarking on a book you know is this the time to do it you know mm -hmm. is this the right time and you have to be you have to be careful to to get the time right yeah. and then it was that Andy Murray press conference in Australia when he announced what you know he said this is pretty much it for me it's the end of the road uh, and uh, that that served just as that thing to concentrate my mind and to think oh yeah okay i'm not any lo any longer going to just uh, be vaguely thinking about this. There always comes a time when you have to commit yourself pretty much exclusively to uh, uh, you have to dedicate yourself to, to writing a book, and that was the that was the necessary prompt. Mm -hmm. Partly because it really made me aware that uh, how that you know God with Andy Murray, who's younger than Federer, uh, signing off, then surely uh, Roger will uh, will not be far behind. Anyway, so I committed to writing it, and then it turned out that during the time I was writing it, then what of this book about things coming to an end? Well, the, the world as we know it <laughs> right. came to an end, which provided a nice kind of uh, larger structure of mm. feeling, if you like, to to encompass this uh, these various studies of individual people. And I guess I was at a phase of my life when I was. Uh, uh, you know, when I was realized, when I became conscious that, oh yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not thirty anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't feel I'm at death's door, or I don't feel my brain is about to to pack in. As you know, Larkin, Larkin, who's crops up in the book too, he wrote to his publisher saying, you know, yeah, I think my brain has packed in. Well, I don't, I, I don't think mine has. Mm -hmm. And uh, but I felt this was a good time to uh, address these these mm. concerns. But that, that's an interesting distinction, I guess, between uh, sports people and writers and artists, right? Because I mm. suppose with, you know, with Andy Murray, you know, it was clear because of his injuries, because of his performance, that the sort of this part of his life, this kind of um, sort of presence as an elite sportsman was going to come to mm. an inevitable end. Yeah. Whereas with writers and artists, it's not quite so marked generally. Yes. Oh, exactly. And with athletes, of course, it happens in public. Right. So your decline can be witnessed by everyone else. And uh, yeah. And but I mean, in a way, they do share this. Writers, 
on the one hand, by which I mean artists, mm. composers and athletes on the other. I mean, you share a similar trajectory and you start as, uh, you know, full of youthful promise. Mm. And then if things go well, you know, you'll achieve some sort of peak. And then there's the decline. Now, in tennis players, this you can judge that. You can see that by the weekly uh, falling sure. in the rankings, yeah. you know. It's, of course, uh, more uh, subtle with, with, with the writer, but there tends to be a, a, a falling off. The interesting thing, I think, about the writing life, apart from the fact that it can extend you know, into your 70s mm. or 80s, uh, is that I sometimes think a condition of one's being able to enjoy this great creative longevity is that you're necessarily almost ontologically oblivious to what is clear to your readers, which mm. is, oh, there has been a falling off in, in quality. So in the book I discuss, and I don't think it's particularly controversial, you know, I talk about Martin Amis, who mm. for a, a, a male writer of my generation is a godlike figure. Right. I mean, just, uh, I mean, it's, uh, you know, just dominates the landscape yeah. so much. And then... You know, for me, Yellow Dog and mm. uh, Lionel Asbo were so poor. And ah. I just kept, for somebody like Amos, who's such a, you know, um, such a, a high, got such a highly evolved sensibility as, mm. a, as a reader, you wonder, God, was he not, could he not see what is so obvious to us? And I was really quite pleased with the way it was a source of, when I got no desire at all to sort of do Amos down. So when I read Inside Story, it was with some trepidation, and I was so happy to find that there was a, you know, that yeah, he sort of uh, there was a, you know, a great Im improvement in 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 quality mm -hmm. there. But having said that, even there, you kind of then you go back to read some of the books when he's really, really on ah. fire, and you realize, oh yeah, it's not quite quite the same. So yeah, over an extended period of time, the you know writers artists they typically undergo the same a, a similar mm -hmm. um decline in 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 quality but these uh yeah that's yeah. yeah at the moment you write um that the value of a life cannot be assessed chronologically and that really struck me as something we don't really allow to probably to anybody to be honest but particularly yeah. to to writers and artists like so you talk about uh kerouac you talk about de Kirico, mm. who had these kind of early sort of uh, works of genius, kind of monumental yeah. works, which will stand the the test of time. And so, for example, you write about Kerouac that uh, from the time that he completed On the Road, he was indemnified against ever making or ever having made a serious mistake in his life. Mm. Um, I'm curious about what, why you think we don't allow this mm. um, sort of this this sort of graceful decline for artists. Like you know, we expect them if they if each of their successive works don't meet the heights of the previous ones. We often treat them as if the previous works are in some way sullied. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we could say it's some inbuilt sort of uh, just as sunflowers have this uh, what is it called a heliotropic right. thing whereby they, you know, they turn towards the sun. So we have this kind of uh, a, it's some inbuilt ameliorative thing, really. And uh, you know, we hope things are going to kind of get better over time. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing that we that we uh, we we have this fondness for, I mean, is that um, maybe uh, this idea that okay, maybe physically, technically, there's a deterioration, mm. and then what we like is the idea that that 
physical or technical deterioration can actually be a component of an overall gain in quality. Mm. So that, for example, actually, I mean, I know it's kind of bad form to quote Bono ever, but, uh, <laughs> you know, he's talking about, um, what's his name? Pavarotti, uh -huh. yeah. And, you know, you know, Pavarotti was touring like mad and, uh, you know, everybody wanted to see him. And the voice wasn't what it was what it was like before. And a lot of people were critical of this. But Bono said, you know, what are these people talking about? Uh, you know, and the idea is that all sorts of other things, life experience, all of this kind of just expressiveness um, can uh, mean that actually it's greater. And I think, you know, I've got this real fascination with late callous, mm -hmm. you know, and there we have it, the ultimate tragic diva. And you feel, oh, my God, the fact that she... You know, how important is it that she couldn't reach the whatever note it is? Yeah. Isn't the, her inability to do that, isn't that going to enhance the tragic quality of the roles she's playing? So all of this kind of stuff is is very, very interesting yeah. to me. And I think that's uh, that's part of the, the hope for this. Just to go back, though, then, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm glad you quoted that line about uh, life not being uh, uh, susceptible to, you know, it's not just what happens last that mm. counts. And yeah, Kerouac is such an important example mm. to me because I really think he's, um, well, there's two things. First of all, although the typical position regarding On the Road is you read it when you're 18, 19, right. 20, yeah. and it's great, and then you read it when you're 28 and you think, oh my God, I've grown <laughs> out of this. I've never grown out uh -huh. of it. Uh, every time I reread re it, it seems to me a more and more profound book. Mm. So there's that. And then there's the fact, I think it was just so sort of heroic, really, what uh, Kerouac, Kerouac did. And the fact that he then uh, became this rather sort of uh, buffoonish, drunken, mm. alcoholic, you know, mess on chat shows really doesn't count for anything yeah, in the, in yeah. the face of, uh, of, of, that, of that great achievement. And I think that's one, uh, at some level, he was conscious of that. And that's why he was willing to let himself go and just become this pudgy drunk living with his mum. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just so extraordinary. The king of the beats living with his mum. Right. You know? Even Larkin didn't sink that yeah. low. <laughs> <laughs> I also think of Kerouac that there's a lot, because I know often a lot of his sort of later works are sort of dismissed as um, mm. obviously lesser works. Yeah. But I do think there's definitely something interesting in those works and, and his earlier works about the kind of, I guess it's, it's often underplayed, the sort of the, the sort of the blue collar, um, also con confrontation with sort of fluid sexuality as well, which is sort of yeah. which was obviously a subtext in a lot of yeah. a lot of his work. But I think sort of I'm, I'm waiting for somebody to sort of resurrect Kerouac as a kind of early sort of uh, exponent of sort of blue collar sort of homosexuality or bisexuality. Yeah, um, but I, I'm still waiting. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, it's uh, yeah, uh, and it's funny though because I don't really when I you know it's it's strange. When I, if I instinctively, I sort of think I love the beats, and then I realize, what do I mean by that? It means I love Kerouac. What do I mean by that? Oh, it means I love On the Road. Mm -hmm. So actually, um, you know, yeah, it is, there's On the Road for me, which is this kind of great peak. And then there's everything else. Our mutual friend Rob Doyle, I think, mm -hmm. was uh, trying to sell me on the virtues of Big Sur or one ah. of those books. And I really, I can't get on with, ah. with that kind of stuff. It's a very uh, the, dark book, Big Sir. Like I, I think it definitely has its merits, but it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's in a bad place when he's writing. 
Yeah, and it's a lot of it seems a, a mess. And well, Kerouac, the interesting thing reading the letters is that he, you know, there's this great breakthrough he makes into the realm of spontaneous prose. Mm -hmm. And then because of the long delay in On the Road getting published, there's all these other works that he'd written, you know, which yeah, come, yeah. come out subsequently. And he's very conscious of the way that he, this liberating thing of spontaneous prose had become a, an imprisoning mm -hmm. uh, method method for for him. Yeah. But uh, yeah, none, none of it matters in the face of the, uh, uh, and actually that's the other thing about On the Road, of course, as one reads it more and more, you can see how it's so entire, it's both a, a revolutionary breakthrough in American prose and literature. And as is so often the case with that which is revolutionary, you can see how much part of a tradition it is as well. Right. You know, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, you know, they, uh, you can, I mean, the, the Fitzgerald quality in it is mm -hmm. so strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. I'd like to pick up on that idea um, of sort of, uh, sort of, I guess, the sort of the blue collar nature of Kerouac, because one thing you, at the moment you're writing about um, retirement uh, mm -hmm. and you say that retirement in the world that you grew up in, so the world of kind of poorly paid, often unpleasant and unrewarding work was something my relatives began to look forward to from a surprisingly early <laughs> yeah. age. And I have exactly the same thing. Like my father retired maybe 10 years ago now. And being in a world, as you talk about, where the world of sort of books and literature, where people don't really admit to either a desire to retire or even the fact that retirement is mm. is possible. I remember the moment of thinking, oh, gosh, you know, what's what's he going to do with his time? What's he going to do with his life? And I remember being quite struck by how how much he embraced uh -huh. <laughs> retirement yeah. after, you know, mm. quite a quite a, you know, a long, a long period of, you know, quite physically and mentally demanding work. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm curious about this thing, about this more, this broader desire of sort of wanting things to be over with. Oh, yeah. Do you think there's a kind of a class dimension to that, to an extent? Uh, I think, well, I mean, immediate, the immediate response is yes, in terms of work, in that, uh, you know, I've had so little experience of working at a regular job mm -hmm. But uh, when you do have a regular job, you're aware of how much it's eating into your time and therefore you long for the weekends and you get this sense of dread when once again your life is going to be taken away from you on a Monday morning. So, of course, if we change the framework from the week, days of the week into the years of the life, then of course you look forward to uh, no longer having to go into this thing as a way of earning the money and just being able to give yourself entirely to the life. Then, of course, once you get into this other way of living, you know, the writer's life, where there's no difference at all between work and leisure, and, you know, your work life is spent, uh, do, you know, a lot of your work life, as I say, is, uh, the thing is, it's indistinct, you know, so right. it's, it's just, it's all, all you're doing is living your life. Uh -huh. So it's very difficult to say when retirement, you know, there's not going to be this moment when suddenly you're not going into the place of work anymore. What there will be is maybe a gradual sort of diminution of uh, of productivity, but you'll be spending your time ostensibly in the same way. You'll probably be at your desk. You'll certainly be reading a lot, and this in turn leads to one of the other, I think, major concerns of the book, which is this. I mean, I'm so hostile to those books you've probably got a load of them down there uh, <laughs> where they say you know it's an afternoon or an evening that will change their mm. lives forever and of course yeah it is possible you could you know i could step outside 
get hit by a truck and, you know, spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair. And then, yeah, that would change my mm -hmm. life forever. But more commonly, it's the way that one's life changes gradually mm -hmm. uh, that is uh, that is uh, remarkable. And so, you know, and that kind of thing of authorial retirement is very much a thing of of, of being of, of a gradual uh, of a gradual alteration. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this book is very preoccupied with um, examining, let's say, the turning points within mm -hmm. the gradual, if you yeah. like. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think I quote. George Oppen with that wonderful line about growing old where he says, oh, God, growing old, it's the strangest yes. thing to happen to a little boy. Yes. Um, oh, that so, really resonates. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even though you're too young to really know what he's talking about, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're too kind. <laughs> At any poetry reading, however enjoyable, the words we most look forward to hearing are always the same. I'll read two more poems. The words we truly long for are, I'll read one more poem, but two seems to be the conventionally agreed minimum. It's lovely hearing this. You can feel a sigh of relief passing through the audience, especially if the previous couple of poems have been precedent-setting sonnets clocking in at under a minute each. After long months in the sea of poetry, the shout has gone up from the crow's nest. Land! We're almost there. We've made it. Can practically taste the scurvy healing lager being poured in a bar afterwards. But then these two last poems turn out to be the opposite of the sonnets that had served as a double full storm before the concluding multi-part epics. The felt duration of each is twice as long as the ring in the book which raises a question. Why did we come if, while being here, we would end up being so preoccupied by no longer being here? Could it be that our deepest desire is for everything to be over with? We want encores, value for money, bang for our buck. But however vigorously we've been clapping and clamouring for more, there is invariably a sense of relief when it becomes clear that the band, despite our collective imploring, are not coming back, that the house lights have flicked on, bringing the last residue of applause to an immediate, slightly impolite halt, and that we can apply ourselves single-mindedly to getting a good place in the stampede for the exits. Beneath it all, writes Philip Larkin, desire of oblivion runs. Just, just sticking with that idea of sort of wanting things to be over and then not so mm. much now in a sort of uh retiring from a you know the, uh, the, the daily grind of a of gainful employment but um for example when you're you're writing about poetry readings yeah um at a moment and sort of and uh, this this desire for how if you go out to a concert or a poetry reading there's there's always a part of you which is kind of longing mm. for it to to be finished and i was i was curious about that because i identified that with that completely uh, but I immediately thought of a friend who I thought I'm sure this isn't the case for him because he seems to sort of always want things to to go on longer mm. and last and and I just I wrote to him about it and he for him he said yes absolutely, absolutely I feel that and that, that really struck oh, good, me it seems yeah. to be... well this just proves Adam yeah. I'm never wrong about anything <laughs> um, and the reason I'm never wrong about anything is because uh you know uh, it, it's a general rule this I think you know if you 
remain if if you can remain faithful to the contingencies of your own experience and the vagaries of one's own nature, mm-hmm. then the chances are, yeah, you know, the more rigorously and uh, yeah, the more rigorously you do that, then the greater the chances are that somebody who doesn't have any of these peculiarities mm-hmm. of disposition will feel uh, the same way. But I think, yeah, I mean, I, I I think that's true. And it's also, if you think about, let's think of another situation. This isn't in the book. Uh, one sometimes finds oneself saying about a book by Dickens, let's say, you know, oh, yeah, I know, you know, Little Dorrit, I never wanted it to end. Uh-huh. And it's sort of true, <laughs> except as you're going through it, you're sort of thinking, oh, great, you know, page 500, I've broken the back of it uh-huh. now. Great, only another, you know, so you're always, <laughs> and there's always that sense of what a, what a relief to have got to the end. The only possible, the only book I can think of where I really didn't have any of that slight um, eagerness for it to, to end, the only example I can think of would be Lonesome Dove by Larry mm. McMurtry. And the reason for that is because when you're reading that book, there aren't any pages. I, you're not even conscious that you're reading. You're just mm. in this world. Mm-hmm. And you're just, you know, yeah, you're, you're, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an extraordinary uh, experience. That really is, that's about the only one I can think of, really. And then, yeah, with films as well, quite, you know, one is very often impatient with films, mm-hmm. especially when you can see where it's going and ah. you've just got to go, you know, you've just realised you've got to sit there as it yeah. works its <laughs> way through the inevitable, inevitable escalation mm-hmm. of violence and explosions or whatever it may mm-hmm. be. Well, then it's interesting because it makes me think again. I didn't realise I'd be bringing my father so much into this conversation. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think often when he he visits, uh, for example, comes to Paris to visit or, or or travels generally, there's always kind of a looking towards the end. And I kind of have the feeling uh-huh. that often he most enjoys travelling once he gets home and can look back and yeah. sort of say, yeah. the trip was over, the trip was a success, mm. nothing catastrophic happened when, uh, yes. when it's, I was uh, uh, yeah, and there's so many manifestations of this. Like when you're on your way home from a trip, you know, you get off the plane and then, of course, you want to be as far as possible first off the plane mm-hmm. and there's that mini rush to get right. to the passport control. And you save all, you know that at that point, every single person you overtake on your rush to the uh, uh, immigration, especially in America, mm-hmm. if you, uh, every minute you save in that bit, you're <laughs> going to save 10 minutes of, you know, yeah. and you do it. And sometimes it goes well and sometimes it doesn't. And then typically you get back home and then you're kind of in this weird kind of, oh, what do I do now? Yeah. You know, you just, just sort of sit there and you realize that, oh, the point of it it's like a little parable you realize that yeah just speeding through it was the point and the purpose Mm. and to wonder what am i going to do now with this time i've saved is actually beside the point yeah 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 because it's sort of by the time you get home you've sort of already entered as it were the afterlife yes (laughs) (laughs) just coming back to this idea of sort of breaking the backs of books and kind of wanting them to end though i think one thing that our listeners uh might find kind of quite liberating while reading your book is when you talk about uh, abandoning books with, oh, I guess, yeah. a kind of gleeful abandon. So you kind of you mm. list uh, this sort of this roster of classics yeah. uh, from the, the Brothers Karamazov, The Man Without Qualities, uh, Finnegan's Wake, um, which is sort of there seems to be almost a delight in not getting to the end of mm. something. Well, I mean, it's I derive no satisfaction from not having finished The Brothers Karamazov. I wish I had done, although I realised that the 
I should have finished it when I was 20 or something, uh, when I had the stamina. Um, and, you know, there's other things. I mean, so, yeah, and it's a strange thing. I, I really don't want to go to my grave without having read Proust properly. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, actually, I seem to make less and less progress with mm-hmm. Proust every time, I, every time I try it. So it's not so much gleeful as just being honest, really. Mm-hmm. Then there are other instances where it is kind of, uh, it's with some... <laughs> You know, I don't have any regrets at all about giving up uh, Anthony Pohl's Dance to the Music of Time right. after five volumes because I felt <laughs> feel that after giving that, you know, what does that translate into? That's about 1,200 pages. Yeah, I yeah. feel I gave him a fair, fair chance, you know, and although my father-in-law insists that it's with volume six that it really gets going, <laughs> uh, I think it would have got going if it were ever going to get going by volume five. yeah. yeah. Um, and then the other thing is, of course, there's just the opportunity cost of persisting when mm. you think, okay, I'm going to, if I read this, then I'm not going to get on to that. Although then this is rather in keeping with that earlier parable about, you know, hurrying through immigration to uh, get home. And then when you get home, you don't know what to do. Quite often I'll abandon a book in the name of uh, devoting that time to something else. Mm. And then what do I do with that? Time. Well, I don't read anything. I just sit there in a sort of stunned kind of what am I going to read now kind of thing. So there are many, many different versions of this, but all of them, I think, are, are quite widely shared. Mm-hmm. And typically, you know, it's what, what one is doing is using some very small example of something, such as in this new book, Shampoo, or, you know, mm-hmm. stealing shampoo from hotels, which is, you know, interesting or not in itself, but typically some larger point is contained within that very specific um, story or narrative mm-hmm. that's being uh, unfolded. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that that shampoo thing. Because whereas with, for example, the this kind of urge for things to end, I sort of, I felt so utterly on the, on the same page as you. Um, this was something I found sort of felt quite alien to me. Where you oh. talk about, um, if I can find the, the quote, yeah, you said sort of... Um, I've never had any big goals, ambitions or dreams, but I've always had so many little schemes, dodgiest scams, hobbies and interests. Mm. And I suppose it's not that I necessarily have big ambitions, but like I I suppose I'm always sort of quite single minded about the thing that is interesting me at that time. And Mm. this kind of dispersed interest. Felt as I say, yeah, quite an alien, uh, alien oh, thing to me. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I, I've, uh, I've, I think I've um, had a peculiar lack of purpose all, all <laughs> my life. Really, maybe, maybe because I found my purpose mm-hmm. and achieved my way of living quite early on, which is mm-hmm. this life of sort of reading and writing, and yeah. that was it. So you could say that it's that overall sense of, uh, you know, what I was going to do that, uh, uh, you know, yeah, I solved that one early on. But uh, no, I think, uh, yeah, these things have always, uh, yeah, I've always had, you know, for so for example, with money, um, I don't, I just have no interest in money Mm. or whatever of, you know, seeing, um, you know, of uh, investing or whatever it might be. But I derive enormous pleasure from immediate and palpable small savings. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and uh, that okay, is, that yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's another. Ver- and the nice thing about that is if you can save a pound somewhere, uh, that's just great. You've saved a pound. Whereas if, let's suppose, if you 
I mean, I'm very, very slapdash about I pay way more tax than I should Mm -hmm. simply because I can't bear, it's too boring to do the bookkeeping. (laughs) And that if the money I would save on uh, doing my tax properly, uh, that would be more substantial. But the thing is, it would be an invisible saving. Whereas, Mm -hmm. you know, when you see that, yeah, I mean, I could actually, I can envisage an old age for myself in which I uh, scrupulously cut out vouchers in newspapers, giving me 20% off at Lidl's. Yeah. Uh, I'm certainly capable of that in a way that I'm not capable of listening to an accountant's advice saying, you know, if you invested this in whatever it is, then you could gain 10 grand a year uh-huh. or whatever. Yeah. So I think that's what, it, that's what it is. It's a question of the need for the palpable, the tangible and the immediate. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd like to come back to this idea of um, artists' last work. Um, mm. And at the moment, you write that how how we love the idea of the last. Mm. But as you as you alluded to earlier, of course, there's sort of there are different lasts. There is the sort of the work that somebody creates after sort of maybe the slow decline, and you know, at a very uh, very old age. There's also the you know somebody who's died suddenly. So the work that, uh, as with Coltrane, you would imagine to be mid period suddenly mm. becomes. Uh, last period. There's a series of books. I think it's published by Melville House, which is the the last interview. Uh-huh. Uh, various different people. The last, you know, the last interview they gave, and depending on the person, you know, their lives ended in such vastly different ways. Yeah. And yet there is a certain glamour associated with with the last. I mean, what do what what underlies that? Do you think? Well, some basic teleological concern, and the idea is also that you're gonna the I, you know, when for example with uh, with my students now, I feel I've got this one huge advantage of them, which is I'm older, so uh, I know something they don't. I know what what they've got coming to uh-huh. them, <laughs> and so somebody who's further along the road from me is in, you know, I mean, let's let's uh, yeah. So there's that there's that kind of thing, and then there are examples. I mean, I guess. Probably, I mean, uh, there might be exceptions, but for the moment, let's say that Beethoven is the apotheosis mm-hmm. of this tendency, whereby, you know, he goes through this, for, you know, there's early Beethoven, there's mid-Beethoven, by which time, of course, he's the greatest composer in, in the world. And then there's late Beethoven, where it's, uh, you know, several things have gone on. One, it's sort of pretty much beyond people's capacity mm-hmm. to appreciate. That's difficult to uh to uh, it's inextricably linked to his deafness mm-hmm. and the thing about that is it's not uh, so it, he's doing this really far out stuff at the end of his life and the extraordinary thing i think about listening to it one of the things i have with classical music i mean people love mozart but so often when i listen to mozart i just see all that wigs and powder and that mm-hmm. viennese courtliness sure. and that rather puts me off then i just feel that like, oh yeah this is this is stuff of a high quality but they could just crank it out by by the you know there's loads of it and then you get to beethoven and it just completely drops out of mm-hmm. historical time like that because you listen to it now you listen to those late beethoven quartets and they are still so far out mm-hmm. and of course stuff has come out since that is even more far out but it's uh, it couldn't have existed without beethoven yeah. and, there is, I think, that is the kind of thing that if with a person of such sort of genius and in particular historical circumstances, you can burst out of time, mm-hmm. and that uh, 
that seems to me uh, uh, that that's and I guess something similar in a, in a different way is happening with Turner. You know, mm. those pictures. Uh, you know, my God, suddenly he's moved into this realm of kind of almost pure abstraction. Uh-huh. So it uh, it uh, it depends on who we're we're talking about, but I think. That's the thing that I'm looking for, the bursting out of the late phase of an individual's life into not the realm of the timeless, but of something that is just, um, yeah, just something which is remains inexplicable, really. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. brings us, I guess, nicely on to Nietzsche, who I don't want to... Yeah. Uh, finish this interview without it's taken a while about. to get round yeah. to him, really, hasn't it? Because yeah. um, he is—he is quite a kind of a, a thread through through the book. I think he's the single most important figure in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny because when um, when I, I got that sense and started reading the book, um, it really resonated because I guess when when I studied Nietzsche first at um, at sixth form, so at the age of 17, 18, and then again at university, I felt that he was kind of repeatedly sold as a kind of young man's philosopher, uh-huh. you know, mm. and, and almost kind of the philosopher that you might grow out of at some point and move on to more sort of serious things. Mm. And yet after revisiting him in recent years, I actually came to think, and, and your book kind of confirmed this for me, that almost the reverse is true, actually, that there's sort of there's so much about Nietzsche, which is about sort of stripping away the the carapace of mm-hmm. that sort of life has built around you. That in a way, as a as sort of a young man, it's almost you're almost too fluid a being to really sort of appreciate the kind of the, I guess, the radical nature of Nietzsche and his writing. Well, let me ask: do, what, what did you do at university? Uh, sort of generally speaking. Yeah. What uh, did you study? Uh, no, philosophy I meant, and politics. I see. Okay. Yeah. So you did philosophy. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So you're yeah. So uh, I, I see. So I think the thing is for, I think it's a joke I make in the, the book, you know, lots of Nietzsche, uh, you know, it's um, it troubles proper philosophers, whereas mm. because I have no training in philosophy, I took to it like a duck to water. Ah. So, you know, I, I Nietzsche is there for me. You know, of course, I'm aware he's a philosopher, but he's, you know, he's a writer and mm. most philosophy I can't, can't understand. And it's so disappointing. But yeah, I mean, my sense, you know, we could pick up a, uh, we could pick up a volume of Nietzsche now, turn to it, uh, uh, turn to it at random, and there'd be something mind-blowingly, you know, this great lightning flash of uh, of illumination. And I find that it's, I mean, yeah, I, I think I'd put it like this: that when I was however old, let's say nineteen or yeah, probably nineteen, eighteen, nineteen, when I first read Middlemarch, mm-hmm. my life experience was so limited. But after reading that book, I understood so much about. Oh, girls and boys, mm-hmm. relationships, gestures, morality, all that kind of stuff. Way more, way in excess of my life experience, which had been limited to sort of beer drinking at that <laughs> point. And then, okay, so there's that. And then, you know, when I and I read it, reread it recently in my sixties, and I, I could still, I could see that I could, I could remember what I'd learned from it. Similarly with Nietzsche, you you know, you read it when you're young, and it's pretty, you know, there's sort of, you know, sh- you know, these great shock waves. Mm-hmm. But my God, the subtlety and nuance of his uh, of his like novelistic yeah. uh, psychological understanding mm. of things is so so incredible. But what you're it's it's interesting that you're getting it without all the uh, you know without the nine hundred pages of other stuff ah. about what's going on in Middlemarch. But I mean, it really it remains intact. Uh, intact, and yeah, I've read pretty much everything by Nietzsche, and. 
then just if quite often, very often, a line is quoted somewhere. And I think, God, that's good. I don't remember that. And then I go back and uh, you look at the relevant book. And then sometimes yeah. I see, oh, I actually, you know, I, I'd put an annotation by, yeah. by, by that line. And yeah, I mean, I, I, if, if it's a silly thing, if pushed, you know, who is my favorite writer of all mm. time? I think it probably would be, probably would be Nietzsche. Mm. I never, never tire of reading him. Although there's lots that, you know, I, Thing I say in the book, I do find most of Zarathustra. I never get tired of him, but I find that pretty tiresome. Sure, yeah, yeah. The bombast. There's something interesting, I think, as well about this idea about you say sort of coming to it as sort of as literature as well, because mm. I remember that was a really distinct feeling I had after reading him was that sort of almost that that separation between philosophy and literature yeah. had been broken. Like sort mm. of the the sort of the philosophers were sort of perhaps masquerading as people dealing in truth in a way that novelists didn't necessarily pretend to. In fact, if you're a fiction writer, sort of ostensibly sort of are not. Yes. And, and Nietzsche's writing blurred that too, because it's so clearly literature. Yeah. Uh, yes, yeah. And yet it's also, you know, sort of doing it within the guise of philosophy, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it's, um, yeah. And, you know, if it, I mean, Nietzsche was keen on calling himself a psychologist. And mm-hmm. it's, yeah, Nietzsche as, the, as a psychologist is, I think, remarkable, especially since he's describing a psychology which uh, actually is in the process of formation, which actually it turns out he's partly in the process of creating. Mm. That is to say, the post the post Christian or post religious uh, yeah. psychology. You know, although I really like Thomas uh, Mann's uh, remark about Nietzsche, where he says that yeah, his rejection of Christianity is a uh, an important uh, thing in the history of Christianity. Uh-huh. You know, he can't shake off his of dad's uh, occupation yeah, yeah. that easily. And then the other thing I think is that, I mean, just the story of Nietzsche's life is so poignant, mm-hmm. really. And, the, you know, I feel quite, yeah, just that, I mean, it's incredible as you read biographies, the stunning scale of his lack of success, uh-huh. you know. Um, and, you know, it's something I was joking with Rob Doyle about last night about our lonely time spent here as writers in Paris. Mm-hmm. You know, and if, if you know, if he if he and I were falling in, and he said quite wittily, he said, "Oh yeah, I did a cover version of that lonely life." Uh-huh. But however <laughs> lonely we were in Paris, we were having a wild time compared with poor old Nietzsche. Uh-huh. You know, who's just wandering from place to place. Um, eventually. The scale of the neglect is so total that he, of course, falls prey to that solace of just rampant megalomania. Yeah. And kind of ironically and tragically, in a sense, what brought him to people's kind of prominence was it was a kind of a corruption indeed. of his of his work by his his sister. Yes, indeed. Although, you know, that's the other thing, you know, so I like this sort of humanist version of Nietzsche, but yeah, there are plenty of bits in Nietzsche where he's, you know, we there's a there's a Nietzsche for every, you know, mm-hmm. you what what sort of you know you we could decide you know uh, what sort of Nietzsche do you want today? Right. Okay, I'll, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I can I can find the you know the proto-fascist Nietzsche. You know, we could probably also find the feminist Nietzsche mm-hmm. if you want. You know, which is quite something for given that famous line about you know when you go to see your woman, don't forget your whip. You know, right? Yeah. Anyway, there's yeah there's a Nietzsche for everybody. It mm-hmm. turns out, but um, yeah, there's a, a beautiful. Yeah, it's there's a there's a very very human uh, consoling side to mm. him, uh, I think. And of course, uh, just as an aside, a writer who uh, 
had difficulty ending the books he was working on as well. Like I think of particularly the the gay science, which is something like the gay science. What is it with a with a prologue of verse and an appendix of songs oh or something like that? It's there are constantly yeah. adding to preludes, <laughs> prologues, the text itself, and then the afterword, the epilogue, the postscript. Yes. <laughs> and in the case of you know, yeah, it's most, once he gets onto Wagner, there's really no end to it. Mm-hmm. You know, he's always adding, you know, yeah. So then the pretty much the last thing he does before he goes completely gaga is compile that uh, anthology of uh, from his previous work to show that uh, even when he was most, you know, um, uh, infatuated with Wagner, you know, trying to show, actually, Eve, if we look closely at this, you'll see that I was already... Yeah. Uh, turning against him. Yeah. Before yeah, yeah. I, you know, before I'd even heard a note of his music, I'd already uh, <laughs> got over him. Um, and and the idea, um, which you say he he considered his most important idea, and it's I guess it's the last thing we're going to talk about today, kind of ironically, is <laughs> this idea of eternal recurrence. Yeah. So, um, well, firstly, for listeners who have not come across this idea yet, would mm. you be able to just give us a little a sort of potted summary? Of yeah. This? Well, you're absolutely right, Adam. This is what he considered his key idea. Which is that uh, the li- this life, as we now lead it, you know, as we now live it, you'll lead over and over again, now and throughout all eternity, mm-hmm. and it's his most emphatic and complete rejection of any Christian idea. You know, the Christian idea is okay. You've got seventy years of suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, what does that matter in the face of a, an eternity of salvation and yeah. bliss? Whereas this idea, you've got only this life. There's just no escape from it, and. You know, he um, and in uh, addition, you will live it again and again and again and again. <laughs> and again and again. Yeah, and so you know, when he first um, sort of uh, quietly announces this in the gay science, he says, you know, if somebody told you this in your loneliest loneliness, wouldn't you clutch your head and say, this is just terrible? And you know, uh, and but then he says, you know, has there ever been a moment in your life when you'd say you're a god, and I've never heard anything more divine? And I think the thing is that, yeah, for, you know, we can think of those moments of heartbreak or Mm. just boredom when, yeah, it's just awful. And then there are those moments when you first fall in love or in my case, when I got my, when I saw that I'd got my three grade A A levels, (laughs) you know, yeah, I'd happily live that morning again when that letter came in the post. But as he says, you can't pick and choose. Mm -hmm. You can't just say, oh yeah, I'll have the greatest hits, but I won't do all the drudgery. And that ends up linking back to the tennis thing in several ways. Uh, Actually, it relates back to our earlier conversation because, you know, we think of poor old Boris Becker now, Mm. you know, ludicrous figure, even when I was writing the book. And then where is he now? He's banged up somewhere sitting there. Well, you know, this is a phase of his life when he's probably probably not keen to Mm. live his years in, uh, live this phase over and over again. But remember that what that bit Nietzsche adds, you know, when he says, but have you ever known a moment? And so you think, oh, my God, at 19 or whatever it was, Becker yeah. wins Wimbledon, raises his arms like that. A moment so great that, of course, is, well, is that moment going to be enough to sustain him? That uh-huh. moment through all, all eternity and sort of, yeah, it mm. is. And it's a moment. Well, actually, I say that because it's so far beyond anything any of us will yeah. experience. And I, I sort of speak. I think probably Maradona winning the World Cup single-handedly is even higher <laughs> up than that. So I think it's a real, it's another way of uh, affirming that, yes, a, a life can't be assessed chronologically mm-hmm. because I guess I'm a bit, you know, right now, my life is loads better than Boris Becker's. His yeah. life sucks in comparison with mine. But, you know, uh, what's the distance 
between my, the high point in my life, which we'll say was those three grade AA levels, and his winning Wimbledon, well, it's colossal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I mean, I suppose this is a bit of an unfair question to, to maybe finish on, but, like, if you had to choose then between that sort of oh. which, which of the... You know, do you find solace in the fact that perhaps your life has been sort of on a sort of sort of level, you know, there's been peaks and well, troughs. Well, it hasn't just been a, 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 I've just not, sure. I've not just plodded <laughs> along like a kind of, I don't know, like a hamster. Oh, no, a yeah. hamster goes round and round in its wheel. Yeah, maybe I have. But um, if you could choose then between, you know, the maybe slightly smaller peaks, but yeah. a certain, or well, the Boris Becker example. That's the thing that Nietzsche in, you know, once you've read that, I mean, Nietzsche says, you know, so you can choose, you know, you, you, I, the choice you make is how you're going to live now. Mm-hmm. So my real answer to your question is, how am I going to spend the rest of the day? Mm-hmm. You know, am I going to, uh, and actually it was, I found today was a really, uh, it's surprising how it happens. I mean, as I walked here today past uh, Notre Dame, which mm-hmm. is being restored, and I was listening to that great track by the Art Ensemble of Chicago, the Tender Yo-Yo. Um, I had some sort of surge of, you know, thinking, yeah, you know, this is, I'm really, I was on my way to to meet you. I was coming here and I'm in Paris and it was, it was great actually. And I would say today was one of those days when I, I think, you know, I'm slightly dodging your point like, <laughs> where, where you're rather, uh, rather ruthlessly asking, you know, <laughs> you or Boris Becker. But no, this was, you know, I, I, I would say that this was a day when I think, yeah, I, I look forward to this, living this day over, over and over again, partly because when I was really, I mean, of course, I was aware of what a big thing it was when Notre Dame built, uh, burned down and it's so, it's so great. Uh, and the other thing is about it when you walk past it, it's so weird, Notre mm. Dame, isn't it? With all those yeah. spooky, it's just an incredible thing. And, so just the, um, just the, I mean, the, the fact that it's being rebuilt. And also I was struck by this, by the scale of, you know, writers talk about how hard it is to write a book, but actually it's quite easy. You just sit there. <laughs> but how do you, how do you go about return, re- rebuilding this kind of wonder of the world? I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's a, I'd like to meet the, the, you know, the person in charge of that. Yeah. Uh, and when it is rebuilt, that'll just be a wonderful moment mm. for, Actually, for all the world, and uh, uh, you know, and it's uh, you know Nietzsche, of course, is so hostile to churches, you know. But actually, there, I'm more of the Larkin persuasion. These the, that that place has a, an incredible mm. power, doesn't it? Just yeah, the yeah, yeah. the forces that have converged there and that have emanated uh, from there. Yeah. Mm. So. Uh, well, that um, that that experience that you just described, I think, is a perfect place for us to to finish today. The last days of Roger Federer is, of course, available from. Shakespeare and Company. We have signed copies in our bricks and mortar store if you uh, if you get here quickly. Otherwise, you can get it from our website or from your local independent bookstore, wherever that may be. Uh, Jeff Dyer, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Adam. It's been such a pleasure. For me too. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by sending the link to some of your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>